In the last two weeks, there's a fair chance that you've watched a video of George Floyd slowly dying as a police officer knelt on his neck. It was deeply distressing and has brought to the forefront a huge conversation about race and racism. In the news and on our feeds, we've been seeing and hearing words like prejudice, privilege, disadvantage and bias. We've had protests all over the world. We've had riots. We've had killings during this upheaval. And you might have even felt in your own sphere this mass division. People you know, friends and family, dividing over all this. Uh, thinking and posts are being more and more different. Stances taken, arguments had, bitterness growing. Have, have you felt it? Because I sure have. And, and so today, we need John chapter 4 more than ever before. Why? Well, because it comes from a time and place of horrendous racism and prejudice. It comes from a time of division, where a status quo had been reached, where most folk were quite okay with the state of affairs, was you know, just how it is. But into that scene steps Jesus, God himself, come to earth to save. And so today, as we, we open this chapter together, I'm going to give the context so that we have a proper understanding of the world uh, in which this event plays out. Then we'll step through the action of this scene and try and feel it, really get what's happening here. And then we're going to wrap up by making a couple of points for us to go away with. Please join me as we start by praying. Father God, I, I pray that you would, you would open our hearts Wherever we're at, wherever we come from, wherever we stand with you, we pray that you would help us to set all those things aside, our concerns, our thoughts, our anxieties, uh, and hear what it is you have to say to us today as we watch your son Jesus interact in a terribly, uh, terribly racist world. We pray that as we do this, you will speak to us and show us what it means for us. And that we might be encouraged and challenged in just the right measure. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, first of all, we're going to have a look at the context. Uh, what's going on in the world that these events play out in? Uh, and and the, the country, the, the region that we read about in John chapter 4, is, a, is this region of Samaria. Now, you'll see on the screen there, we've got a map of the Israel, the world Jesus lived in. Uh, you'll see uh, down towards the bottom is Judea. Uh, that's where Jerusalem is. Uh, just above it is Samaria, this region we're discussing today. And above that is Galilee. Uh, running along one edge is the ocean. The other edge is uh, the river with the Sea of Galilee there. You'll, you'll see it there. So first of all, we, we have to understand how did this nation or this region of Samaria uh, actually get here? Well, originally that was all one kingdom. Uh, God's people, and it was called Israel. But in 890 BC, it split under the son of King Solomon. Uh, the nation of Israel, which covered all that land, all 12 tribes of Israel, actually split into two nations. Uh, the bottom uh, was called Judah, uh, and in our map you can see it's Judea. Uh, the top was then called Israel. Now, that went on for some time split. There was sort of civil war going on at different times. There were unhappy cousins. 
but around 722 BC, God actually judged the northern nation of Israel by sending the Assyrian nation in uh, to destroy that nation and deport most of their, most of their people out. Uh, they actually resettled that nation with, with people from other, other nations, other countries, other religions. And these other people who came in, uh, they, they mixed with whoever was left, whichever Israelites were left there, but they bought their own gods uh, and whose worship, they actually combined the worship of these other gods uh, with the remnants of the worship of Yahweh, the God of the Jews, and Baal. And, and it just turned into this sort of hybrid religion. Um, now, going a bit further on in history, 597 BC, Judah was also exiled uh, to Babylon this time. And by the time some of Judah came back to their land, to Jerusalem in 539 BC, uh, they found that there was a complete rift between this southern nation uh, and the northern nation now called uh, the Samaritans or Samaria, both politically and religiously. Uh, in the time of Nehemiah, the Samaritans actually opposed the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, and like, later on, it just got worse and worse as they, they, further, they further divided. Uh, eventually, they actually dedicated their little center of worship to the god Zeus. So by the time Jesus turns up on the scene, uh, there is a strong rivalry uh, and hatred between the Israelites and the Jews and the Samaritans. And, and that's where we see this Jew-Samaritan relations in John chapter 4. They actually lived in different towns. They wouldn't live together. Uh, there'd be Samaritan town and Jewish towns. They, they didn't, even with travel, the Jews wouldn't travel through Samaria. Um, so you see there on the map, if a Jew wanted to go from Judea up to, up to Galilee, they would actually cross the Jordan, um, go right up the other side, and then back into Galilee to avoid going through, to avoid going through Samaria. Uh, and in today's passage, we actually have a little author's note which highlights this Jew-Samaritan um, rivalry and hatred. Uh, we see it there. It says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's the equivalent to a sign that says, we don't serve blacks here. And you can feel just the awkwardness and the hatred in that statement. And it's into this scene that Jesus steps. Now, it might seem obvious but this chapter, it's not a list of information about Jesus. It's, it's a scene. It's a real event with real interactions with real people. But so often we read chapters like this as if they were a textbook where we were trying to learn something about Jesus. So today, let's slow down and see this scene. Sort of like you do if you're reading a novel or maybe like you did when you were a kid. I want us to really feel what's happening here. So let's step through this scene now, uh, and, and we'll start there in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now it seems Jesus heard that there was this division that the Pharisees were exploiting these super-religious Jews, were stirring up this division between John's disciples and his disciples. So he decided, look, I'm just going to get out of there for a while. So he decided to head back to Galilee for a time. Now, remember the map? Um, 
We've got Samaria in the middle. They are in Judea. They had to get back to Galilee. Now, John writes here that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And we know that he didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, the Jews practically never took that route. So, so this is unusual to say the least. Uh, so saying Jesus had to indicates that Jesus had some other reason why he had to, why he must go through Samaria. And we're going to look out for that as we go. Now, I want us to pause here and just think, what, what do you think the disciples would have been feeling at this point? They had no explanation or preparation. And Jesus leads them into this region they had spent their whole lives trying to avoid. I reckon they might have felt like we feel when we're work, walking through a neighbourhood where we feel incredibly uncomfortable. Might be a neighbourhood that's rougher than you used to or nicer than you used to or just different. But that feeling of being out of place, of knowing you don't belong there and knowing that everyone else knows that you don't belong there either. And so as they're, they're on their way, verse 5, uh, so he, Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now first, remember we're looking out for anything unusual. Jesus comes here deliberately. He must come here. He had to. And second, remember that John, the author of this book, he doesn't waste words. There is endless detail he could have recorded, but he chose not to. So anything that John does choose to record here, he puts on purpose. So when we read that immediate, that when we read, we immediately know something's not right. Uh, because mornings are the time to draw water with the other women. It was a communal activity. It's what they did. Uh, usually around dawn while it's still cool. Uh, it, it actually still happens in communities uh, where you have to collect your water from a source. Uh, you go in the morning, you go together. But by midday, it, it's scorching hot. And here is a woman out getting water. Why midday? Well, well as this scene unfolds, it will become apparent that this, this woman has come in the middle of the day uh, because it's pretty well the only time she could guarantee she wouldn't see anyone. But surprisingly, uh, to her surprise, here's Jesus uh, on purpose, uh, and it, it feels like he's waiting for her, like he has an appointment that she doesn't know about. And Jesus asks her for a drink, which is also very unusual. Have a look there. She, she notices it straight away, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. For this woman, apart from the strangeness of finding a man at the well, on his own, in the middle of the day, uh, Jesus' request is two levels of weird. First, she's a Samaritan. You know, that phrase, the we don't serve blacks here phrase. This is the kind of culture would rather walk into town than share a bus with that race. And the second weirdness for her is she's a woman. Uh, this is an area where mostly women were to be seen and not heard. They're not addressed by men, are certainly not interacted with by strange men at the world. Well, so she, she's shocked. 
She says, how, how can you even ask that? And Jesus responds by showing her why he broke all these norms. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, this scene would be funny if this woman weren't so desperate. She just doesn't get it. And fair enough. They're sitting by a well and Jesus has just asked for a drink. But Jesus, he's not talking about something you can drink. In the Old Testament, this idea of living water is a big theme in Jeremiah. Uh, and, and Jeremiah describes it as God is the source of this living water. We, we find it described in Ezekiel 46 where a whole chapter is given around this theme of living water flowing out from the place where God is bringing life. And later on in John chapter 7, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, Jesus again brings up this idea of living water saying, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, uh, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Now, now, this poor woman at the well, she, she can't have known uh, that Jesus is somehow talking about the Spirit of God who will come and fill the hearts and lives of his followers, transforming and renewing them and bringing new life. She can't have known that. And it's highly unlikely that she was familiar with the other Old Testament passages. So she's just totally confused. What she thinks Jesus is offering is a jug of water that will never run out. Which just sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? It's like the never-ending pack of Tim Tams. But that even highlights her desperation because she's willing to ask this strange Jewish man at the well for magic water. Look, sir, she says, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's tired. She's ashamed. She's sick of hiding and the drudgery and exhaustion of avoiding judgmental eyes and words. But Jesus knows why she's desperate, what she's truly yearning for. And it's not that she doesn't have to draw water. So he highlights the most painful and shameful part of her life. Verse 16, he told her, go, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now we just don't know why she's had five husbands. Maybe they all died. Maybe they all left her or maybe she left them. We do know that her current man is not her own husband. Is she sleeping with another, another wife's husband? Is, she, is he just unwilling to commit to her? Does he just want to use her? 
whatever her situation is, it's brought a deep shame. It's why she's out here in the heat of the day rather than in the morning with the other women. And it's why she placed this classic diversion tactic we've seen a thousand times, which is ask an unrelated and very technical question. Verse 19, her response, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now remember that the Samaritans had actually set up a different place of worship. They said, we don't want to go to Jerusalem anymore. We'll make our own center of worship. And this was just a classic tactic. It was a sure way to get a rise out of any Jew. But Jesus, well, has he got news for her? Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So what Jesus is announcing to this woman is that a new era has come. An era where there would be no physical location to go to worship God properly. Instead, their worship would be genuine, truth, spiritual, and all-consuming. And again, looking for us looking back, we can see what this means. We know that after Jesus' death and resurrection, all Jesus' followers would get his Holy Spirit. We know um, that the worship of Jesus to honor him, it's not tied to a time or a place, but it flows from a genuine heart of love and, and is all-consuming. But for this woman, it's pretty confusing for her. And so I reckon her response was spot on. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. Well, when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. But she wasn't expecting what Jesus says next. Verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, now this is hands down the clearest revelation by Jesus of who he is. There's no hesitation, no speculation. There's no room for misunderstanding him. Jesus flat out tells her, yep, that is me. But right at that moment, verse 27, just then, his disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Now, now this, this is just so awkward. No one says anything. Have you been in a situation like that, that, he, that he's so bad, you, you, you don't even know what to say. You can't address it. It's so inappropriate, so bad. You just look at the ground or the sky. And it looks like they're standing there awkwardly, not saying anything until this woman takes off. Uh, verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of their town and made their way towards him. Now, did you notice the miracle that just happened? The transformation? She was hiding 
and now she's public. She was ashamed and isolated and now she's central. And these people from the village, they're on their way out to the well. Uh, this is happening while the next discussion is going on. And so picture the scene in your mind. Uh, they're slowly approaching the well from the, from the village. Verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have bought him food? Well, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps is drawing a wage and the harvest a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Now, understandably, this little statement, it's actually applied to later situations. How we can't take credit for what happens under our watch when it was someone else who put in the hard yards earlier. But these words are first and foremost for this situation at the well. I want you to follow the logic here. Uh, Jesus says to them effectively, he says, I've, I've already eaten. And they say, what? You've already eaten? And he, he says, yeah, yeah, my food is doing God's work. Now, what is God's work? Well, within this passage, verse 23, God's work is to seek true worshippers. Verse 35, it's to gather a harvest of people. Verse 36, it's to give those people eternal life. That's the work of God. And Jesus is saying, I have food, I've eaten. I've been doing that very work. And as they're having this conversation, as they're speaking, this crowd from the village is getting closer and closer, led by this previously creeping and shamed woman, now chattering at the core of this crowd, explaining her interactions with Jesus. So as Jesus is speaking, I reckon he's pointing to them. He says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life. And if there was any doubt that it was these Samaritans who Jesus was speaking about, John makes that explicit in the very next sentence, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. After two days, he left for Galilee. Did you notice here all the things that are in that marvellous conclusion of this passage? Many believed based on this woman's testimony, based on what she said. She convinced a whole bunch of these people in the village who she was previously hiding from to believe in Jesus. Did you also notice that Jesus stayed in that village for two days? Jesus only had a short ministry, only a few years. And he invested days in this backwater Samaritan village. And as he did, even more believed. 
But the highlight of this scene, <coughs> indeed the highlight of this whole section, is the statement from these Samaritans. Did you see it there? We know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Not the saviour of the Jews, not the saviour of the men, not the saviour of the whites or the blacks or the rich or the poor or the good. Now we know he is the saviour of the world. Now I hope you've got a fresh feel for this incredible chapter today. And I want to wrap up by pulling out just a few things for us to take away. The first is what this passage says about doing God's work. Jesus makes a big point uh, that the whole time this is going on, unbeknownst to the disciples, he's been doing God's work. Remember that? Uh, I have food you know nothing about. In Luke 19, uh, when Jesus is at the home of another social outcast, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In the words of this passage, Jesus was seeking true worshippers. He's gone out to gather the harvest, to bring eternal life to people, and he deliberately goes on purpose to Samaria to do that. Not to the temple or to the priests, not even to a Jewish village, but to a Samaritan and to a woman who has been shunned by her community. As we read the accounts of the life of Jesus, he does this again and again, seeking worshippers in the most unlikely of places. So, so if you are on the outer in any way, if you've been disadvantaged in any way, whether it's race or sex or money or family or culture or experiences, I want you to look at Jesus. Look at who he wants. Look at who he goes to seek. And the first thing he wants from you is belief. Later on in John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus says that the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus seeks you first and foremost, not to sort yourself out, not to clean yourself up, not to prove yourself worthy, but to believe. There's an invitation then and now to come and join Jesus' family. Allow yourself to be found by him. He's seeking you. Allow yourself to be included by him, to be lifted up and privileged by him as a precious, treasured member of God's family. Now, if you've already experienced that, if you're already a true worshipper of Jesus, then we need to ask ourselves, well, where am I biased? This, this chapter forces us to ask that. Where am I biased? It could be a, a race thing. It could be a culture thing. Where they live, how they dress, how they speak, how they act. It could be biased by where they work or how their kids behave or what they spend their money on or even how they treat others. But there is a fair chance that built into each one of us is a bias. A bias that doesn't believe or want to believe that that person can or should come into Jesus' family. It might be buried down deep. You probably don't even know it's there. 
But one of the ways that we can overcome this bias is for us to go out of our way to cross boundaries, to, to seek worshippers of Jesus. Now, that's what Jesus does here, isn't it? Let's imitate Jesus in this and take the good news of Jesus to people who in any way have, have restricted or limited access to God's family. Cross boundaries to go to unlikely worshippers in our view. So that's the first thing for us to take home. Uh, Jesus is doing God's work. He's seeking worshippers from the most outer and unexpected places. Let's join him in doing God's work. First by believing and then by seeking more. And the second thing uh, is that we see that Jesus comes to transform and heal us. Did you see that in this story? Because it's not just about a racial group. It's about an individual, about a woman who begins this scene weary, exhausted, struggling to draw water in the heat of the day, preferring even that to the shame and hurt that comes with seeing the other women in the town, women who know. And so she hides out of the community, isolated, all alone. And Jesus drags her shame and pain into the light. Now that seemed pretty shocking, didn't it? It pretty invasive to highlight that part of her life. But Jesus didn't do it to bring her shame and pain. He did it to heal. And he does heal her. In this same scene, she is transformed from hiding to announcing that she's found a man. Can you imagine the people in the village? Oh, yeah, another one. But, but, but instead of hiding, she draws attention to her string of husbands. That's her announcement. He told me everything I ever did. She begins this chapter ashamed, alone and isolated, out of the community, on her own. And she ends this chapter at the very centre with the village gathered around her in grateful thanks to her. Verse 42, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Do you see the transformation? That gives us great hope. Because no matter where we are, no matter what we've done or what's been done to us, Jesus can bring healing and hope and restoration. Now, now, this doesn't mean that we've got a guarantee that everything will be better or good, like a magic wand waved. But there is hope. Jesus can heal and transform beyond anything we could expect or imagine. And however he chooses to do that, we can trust him that he will do what's right, that he will do what's good. And he'll do what's going to be best to love us best. And we can know that because wherever we're from, whoever we are, whatever we've done, this man really is the saviour of the world. Father God, we thank you so much that you sent your son to seek and save the lost. We thank you that here in John 4, we see Jesus crossing boundaries crossing racial groups, crossing cultural expectations to reach out and seek this uh, woman at the well in Samaria. 
Father God, we look forward to meeting her, to hearing her tell us of all Jesus has done for, for her. And we pray now, we pray that you will help us to be found by you, that you will find us, that you will find us to be true worshippers, that you will help us to put aside whatever else we're worshipping and look to Jesus and believe in him and honour him and trust him. We pray that you will help us to do your work and reach out to others that will identify any areas where we are biased against anyone and work to put that aside and seek to cross boundaries to bring the good news of Jesus to everyone. And Father God, we, we thank you that you don't, you don't highlight our insecurities and hurt and shame to bring us pain, but you do that to heal us. And so we pray that you will do that. Heal us, we pray. Help us to trust you and to bring these parts of our lives into the light. And we pray that you will change and heal us for the good of, of us and those around us. And we thank you that we can trust you to do this. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.